very, very precious gospel written by a disciple who was known as the beloved disciple. We will be covering this morning verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. As John writes regarding the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father, once again we come before your holy and precious word. We pray, O Father, that you would help us to understand it, that we might know you, increase the depth of our thought and understanding, that our worship might be great, that your Son might be exalted, that, Father, you would be glorified. Fill us with your Spirit. Grant to us, O God eyes that might see and understand and know your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a boy, like perhaps many of you, I took the yellow school bus, I'd walk to the bus stop, and I'd climb on the bus take the bus to school there and back, all the way up probably through high school. And I remember many times walking home from the bus stop, even as a junior higher or high school or whatever it would be. And on my walk home, what I would do is I would often sing. I would often sing. It would be my quiet time, perhaps, And one of the songs that I would sing had the words that went, uh, Some people say there is no God, but it's not true. He lives within my heart and in the heart of you. Be still and hear him speak. Listen quietly. Walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus, there is no greater thrill. Walking with Jesus calms my heart like nothing else will. There is no greater person, no greater one that you can know and love than the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhat like the song that we sing, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And this morning as we begin the book of John, we look at the life of Jesus. 
It is the aim of this particular gospel, this very thing that John writes about knowing and believing in who Jesus is. Because at the end of the book, the last verse of this gospel, he says in John 20, verse 31, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life in his name. That believing you might have life in his name. This gospel is the fourth The fourth of four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of these Gospel writers writes specifically about the person of Jesus Christ. Each one focuses and emphasizes a different aspect of his life. Matthew focuses and emphasizes that Jesus is king. He writes to Jews about a Jew. He himself being a Jew, Matthew is. And he writes about the the rightful place that Christ has as king. Mark, he focuses on Jesus as a servant. For in Mark 10:45, which is a key passage for the entire book, says Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Luke focuses on the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is fully man as well, and he can fulfill the deepest needs and desires of a man's heart. Whereas in John, focuses on the deity of Christ, that Christ is fully God. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes known as the synoptic Gospels, from the Greek word meaning seen together, as a compound word. Sin being together and optic being to see. Because why? They're very, very similar. They overlap. Many of the parables are repeated or some of the events are repeated. And they're very similar, these first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. But John, on the other hand, John is very much different. Unlike the other three Gospels, John contains no parables. And prior to the passion of Christ, we speak of the passion of Christ, meaning the suffering of Christ, the week when he is crucified on the cross. We talk about the passion of Christ, again, meaning suffering around Easter time. Prior to that, there are only two events that John has that are similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that is the feeding of the 5,000 and when Jesus walks on the water. That doesn't mean that the Gospel of John, though, is any less important than the other three. In fact, in the early centuries of the church, when the councils gathered, the church councils gathered in the 4th and 5th century in order to define or refine Christian beliefs about the Trinity, about the Incarnation, and Incarnation means when God became man. It was the Gospel of John that they looked to. It was the Gospel of John that gave critical guidance. And it was the Gospel of John that in the medieval times when those who were the scribes would copy, copy on manuscripts the Gospel of John, they would decorate the Gospel with an eagle. They would decorate the Gospel of John with an eagle. Why? Because 
the Gospel of John, partly because the Gospel of John raises one's thinking about the person of Jesus Christ to high levels that one might understand and know how great the person of Jesus is. In fact, the very first two verses here in this Gospel were so venerated in the book written or the notes written by Gary Berg, he says that the medieval church, to the medieval church, the prologue, meaning the beginning of this gospel, was so venerated that it was sometimes worn in an amulet around the neck to ward off disease and evil spirits. The Roman church read it over the sick and newly baptized. Why? Because right here within the first few verses of the book of John, it delineates succinctly one of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. One of the non-negotiable essentials of the Christian faith, and that is that Jesus is God. For without that, there is no salvation, no Savior, no hope if Jesus is not God. That is so important and easily seen because cults and false religions regularly attack the deity of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. If there's anything that a cult will attack, it is two things, primarily, to undermine one's faith. It is to undermine who Christ is and what he has done. And secondly, to undermine the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture as our objective source of truth. To undermine the scriptures and to undermine who Christ is and what he has done is often the path that cults and false religions will take. They deny that Christ is God. They deny that he made atonement for your sins. They deny that you need him to be saved. And I want to underscore as we look into these first few verses, because as we look into these very first few verses of this book, it will challenge you to think deeply. And I hope you have your Bibles with you because it will look deeply into the text. It is a theological passage. It is a very passage that will challenge your thinking. And I want to encourage you to be a person who thinks deeply. Because sometimes, you know, many will say, I appreciate those that are practical. You know, tell me the ten things I need to do to be a better husband or the three things I need to do to make my child turn out better as a parent. But many times there are passages and prologues and foundational things that letters in the New Testament begin with. They begin with doctrine and they begin with theology. Why? Because we do things. We do things. And it is better to do things because we understand why. Foundationally, you see, what sustains, what supports, what continues to motivate a person is your understanding of why and the basis by what you do what you do. And understanding the person of Christ and who he is and why he came and what he did will elevate your worship. You see, I'm not going to stand here and say, well, you need to sing louder or you need to be more passionate about your worship because if you see Christ as worthy of your worship, if your understanding of who Jesus is, your worship will come. 
I can't imagine some being in heaven and standing there before the throne of grace, before the God of the universe and saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't sing good, God. Well, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable because of how others might hear me. You'll be so raptured by the truth of his revelation of who he is. You will worship because you will see him as he is. And the truth of that is revealed within scripture so that we might know the God of the scriptures. So that we might know Christ. And the more we know of who Christ is and who God is, the greater our worship will be. Because shallow thinking Leads to superficial action that is just motivated on the outside, externally. But if you understand and have deep convictions and a deep understanding, it will lead to an enduring lifestyle that is motivated internally. So let's look now at this text. Let's look now at this text in John chapter 1 verse 1 because here we see his divine nature. Here we see who he is, his pre-existence and his incarnation. And he begins with establishing that Jesus is God. He begins with one of the key attributes that only belongs to God. He says, in the beginning was the word. And he establishes within this text the eternality of Christ. The eternality of Christ. Now, the word beginning can mean source of authority or rule. But here it means from the beginning. He was in existence before the beginning of the created universe and all created things. Now, think with me in physics. Physics states that you have to have time and space and matter all occurring at the same time. If you don't have one, you cannot have the other two. And so if you think that time is defined by a succession of moments of created things, before there was even creation, there was no time. And Christ existed before time. Time began at a particular point. But Christ and God and his eternality are apart from time. They were there before time even began. They are above time. And yet after time was created, they functioned within the boundaries of time. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. God does not age. He is the beginning and the end. It's fascinating, too, that the Greek word for beginning stresses the word always existed. There was never a point when Jesus came into existence. And that is what some will say. They'll read John 3.16 and say, oh, he was the only begotten son. You had to have a beginning if you were begotten. No, this passage clearly tells us that Jesus is eternal. Even before time began, before all of creation began. That is an attribute that belongs to God. That is an attribute that belongs to God. And Christ shares in that eternality in the beginning. In the beginning, it says, was the Word. Now, it's curious to know. I always thought to myself as I read the passage as a young man, I thought to myself, why in the world does he not just say in the beginning was Jesus? Why does he say the Word? Many of you recognize the word in the Greek. It is Logos. Some of you have heard of Logos Christian Bookstore or you've used Logos Bible Software. 
That is the Greek word for the word word. And why does he use that particular word, the word word? Well, it is because of the audience to which he writes. He writes and those who were Greek, those who were Greek philosophers of the day, believed that the logos or the word was an impersonal an abstract principle that it was the source of reason or order in the universe it was a creative force it was to even the lay Greek person the person who was not a philosopher they would understand that the word was the most important principle in the universe John John here presents that differently. He presents in his gospel that the word, the most important principle in the universe was a personal, personal, living person. John presents Jesus as the personification or the embodiment of that. Because even in the Jewish mind, the word, the word was a significant Old Testament theme. It was the expression of divine power, divine wisdom, whether it was the word of God that spoke all of created things in the beginning of Genesis or in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of the hosts. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, writes in John 1.1, John not only calls Jesus God, but also refers to him as the Word. John's readers would have recognized in this term, Logos, a dual reference, both in the powerful, creative Word of God in the Old Testament, by which the heavens and the earth were created, and to the organizing, unifying principle of the universe, the thing that held it all together, allowing it to make sense in Greek thinking. Do you know Jesus is also called the Word? If you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, the last book in the New Testament. Revelation 19, verse 13. Revelation, chapter 19, verse 13. It says there in the text, He is clothed, who is this? Christ. With a robe dipped in blood, And his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. This is who John is referring to. Now in John 1.1, we all need to just simply look down until we see verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So the reason why John presents Jesus as a word is because in the Greek thought it was the greatest unifying principle, the force that held everything together, but he places a a person to it. From the Jewish thought it was significant, very significant that it was the power of God, the person of God, and he identifies this person as the Lord Jesus Christ, the personal and living embodiment of divine power and revelation in the universe. He's eternal. Secondly, not only is Jesus eternal and the Word, Jesus had fellowship with God. For it says in the second phrase, And the Word was with God. 
And the word was with God. Jesus was with God. It means more than just hanging around. It means more than just, well, we're with each other here. What it means is that there was within the Trinity an intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. And there was a special fellowship within them. Robert Cook writes, It gives the picture of two personal beings facing one another and engaging in intelligent discourse. And this fellowship between the Father and the Son was a pure and holy relationship. A relationship that they had always known for all of eternity. A fellowship that was right and true and pure and unbroken until... As Jesus bore the sins of the cross of the world, and he said in Mark 15:34, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the sins of mankind that he bore on his shoulders, there was a break in that fellowship for however short of a period of time when God turned from Christ. Up until that time, however, Jesus knew. God in a way that we do not. Not only, you see, did he have fellowship, not only did he have an eternality that he shared with God, but Jesus was God. Verse 1, the third phrase, the Word was God. The Word was God. It is a very clear, a very simple statement. Just four words, both in the English text and in the Greek text, they are four simple words, succinctly written, that state that Jesus is God. And yet, without fail, cults, false religions will always, most always, attack, attempting to reinterpret this verse. How do they do that? This is an important text because, you know, when the Jehovah Witness knocks at your door or when the Mormon knocks at your door or whoever it may be, they'll often turn to this particular verse. And this is what they will say. They will say, look at your Bible, and they'll say, look, and the word was God. And they'll say, look, the word God there, the word God there is anarthrous, meaning that it's not preceded by a definite article. And if you've forgotten your grammar, your English grammar, a definite article in the English language is the. They'll say, oh, look, it doesn't say the word was the God. And so what we do, we clarify it, they say, and we'll insert the word a. The word was a God. Or sometimes they'll say, oh, the, the, the word was uh, divine. Theos, that's what they say it will mean. They'll say, well, it doesn't have a definite article. You know, I was uh, reading somebody's email to somebody else. You know, we often use a definite article in order to designate something specifically. You know, you say, uh, I woke up in the morning. And I, in the morning, I love to smell the smell of Starbucks coffee. Right? And you, you say, well, you don't, you don't say, I, lo- I love the smell of Starbucks coffee in morning. Nobody will know what you mean. And even in an email, I, you know, somebody was saying, you, the man. They don't say, you, man. You put in the definite article so they know what you're talking about. Now, they'll say, this is missing a definite article. John, he's a fisherman. He doesn't write well, you know. So, what's it mean? Well, the reason why there is no 
oh, definite article there. And if you forget this little grammatical excursion that I'm going to take here, just remember there is a Greek rule. Language functions by rules. You inherently know that certain things ought to be said a certain way. Because if they're not, they're not clear or they don't make sense, right? And you inherently know that. And so there's a Greek rule called the Caldwell's rule. And you'll find it in any standard grammar. You'll find it in any standard Greek grammar that says this. The basic rule is this, is that a definite predicate noun, which in this case would be God, will usually drop the definite article when it precedes the verb. But the subject of the sentence, if it is definite, will retain the definite article. The subject of the sentence is the word. Now, in the Greek text, it doesn't read, the word was God. It reads, literally, God was the word. And there is no, the God was the word. It says that God was the word. Now, the predicate noun is God. It drops the the. That's just the rule of how the language works. So you don't put A there. It drops it because that is understood by the speakers of the language. And if John wanted to write the word was a God, he would have written differently. But he didn't. By God's sovereign hand, what he wrote was what? The word was God. That is the only way to write that particular phrase. So again, if you forget all of that grammatical stuff, you just remember, you know what? The way that it's written is the only way that it could express what it is supposed to express was that the word, which was Jesus, was God. Now, sometimes cults will debate and they'll say, well, look, uh, Jesus was divine. That's what they'll say. It's, uh, it's unknown. Well, if that were the case, which it isn't, then they should be consistent. Context dictates is it God, God of the universe, who created all things, or is it just divine? Well, there are many other times when God is used in the first chapter, in verse 2, verse 6, verse 12, verse 13. All of them refer to the God of the universe who created all things. Here, it means the same thing. That John writes... Jesus was a God of the universe. He is eternal. He has enduring fellowship with God. And Jesus is God. That's what he says. Fourthly, in verse 2, Jesus is eternality and his fellowship is reiterated. In verse 2, he simply repeats the first two tenets. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. Once again, John reiterates the doctrine so we simply don't miss it. He says, and he says later on, he says later on another statement of his eternality in John 8:58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking to a bunch of Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham lived thousands of years earlier. They held Abraham up as the father of their nation. Now, just so that he wasn't misunderstood. Some people, well, they didn't understand. Well, you know what? They knew exactly what he was trying to communicate. 
He was trying to equate himself with having existed from eternity past, way before Abraham. And so the Jews, in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew he was committing, or they believed, I should say, he was committing blasphemy. You know, one of the strongest statements, if you're looking to prove that Jesus is God, comes in John chapter 20. If you turn your Bibles there, just a number of chapters over. John chapter 20, verse 27 to 29, actually will begin in verse 24 with an account. One of the strongest arguments, if you're trying to say to somebody, well, Jesus is God, and they're saying, well, look, Jesus never said that he was God explicitly. You can not only turn to John 1, 1, but look at what happens in John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, sometimes we know know him as Doubting Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You see, Jesus came to the disciples earlier. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, remember Thomas was the doubter, that reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. This is what Thomas said. Thomas said, answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, Thomas calls Jesus God. Now, if Jesus were not God, this would have been the perfect opportunity for him to correct Thomas and say, Thomas, I'm sorry, you have it wrong. You've got it all wrong, Thomas. I'm not God. But what did he say? Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. See, instead of correcting Thomas on a major tenant of the faith, Jesus confirms that those who believe in God are blessed. It's not simply because Thomas said that, but it's because of Jesus' response to Thomas that it is one of the strongest statements. Jesus himself confirms that he himself is God, the God of the universe who created all things. Then, John, in the early verses of chapter 1, turns to the power of Christ. After showing that He is God, He is eternal, He is the God of the universe, who has been in existence from all time, God Himself, He turns to His power. All things, verse 3, came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Most of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when it says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we think of God the Father, and that is true. But it is through Christ who created, that God created the heavens and the earth. For it says, all things came into being. Even in Colossians chapter 1, it says the same thing. 
For he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15 of chapter 1, the firstborn of all creation. That means that he is the exact replica, image, or what we get the word uh, uh, exact, like a stamp. The firstborn, meaning not firstborn in terms of time, but first in preeminence, first in priority. For by him, verse 16 of Colossians 1, all things were created. All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authority, meaning everything, the seen and the unseen, the spiritual and the physical, everything has been created by him, through him, and for him. For him. These are created for Christ. And it says, furthermore, He is before all things. Not only has everything been created through Christ, been created for Him. He is before all of these things. And the importance of the Savior being the Creator, the importance of God being the Creator, is underscored by the very fact that this is the basis by which we worship God. Revelation 4, if you turn in your Bibles to the chapter, the last book once again, Revelation 4, and we look at verse 9. Why is it that the living creatures, why is it that the elders around the throne, which are representatives of the church, fall down? And why is it that they worship God? Verse 9, Revelation 4. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying what? Saying this, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For You created all things. And because of Your will, they existed and were created To say that everything came in through some natural process by evolution is the very, undermines the very basis by which these people and us worship God. It abandons the idea that God didn't create everything and it throws off this idea that God has authority. You see, naturalism, the philosophy that everything came into being by some process devoid of God is an attempt to throw off any vestiges of God's authority, right? If you are the creator of something, you have every right. If I build a model airplane, I have every right to paint that model airplane whatever color I want. I want to paint it purple, that's fine. I want to paint it, you know, whatever. And I want to dismantle it, I have every right to. Why? Because I built it. I put together that model airplane. But if you come and you smash up my airplane, you don't have any right to do that. Why? Because you didn't build it. You didn't create it. God created everything and because He is the Creator, He has every right to do what He so chooses to do. We see that Jesus is the Creator of all things and His power is shown here through His creation. Not only is His power shown, His life in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Once again, in the economy of words that God uses, in the simplicity of the language, He says right here, in Him was life. And theologians call that the attribute of God's self-existence. 
His self-existence, or sometimes they call it the attribute of God is God's independence. God's independence. And what that means is this, that Jesus, or God, does not need anything in creation to exist. Jesus doesn't need anything in creation to exist. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need food. He doesn't need some energy source. He doesn't need some starship to travel from one planet to another. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need anything to exist. He who is independent of creation. That is wholly different. That is wholly different than man. We need food. We need air. We need Christ. In Christ was life. That's why in Colossians 1.17, as I just reiterated to you, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, the text says. In Him all things hold together. One of the ministries of Christ in His self-existence is that He holds everything together. He has a sustaining ministry. He sustains and holds all created things together. One commentator notes, He is the one who keeps all the entities in space in their motion. He is the energy of the universe. In the book, The Atom Speaks, Dr. D. Lee Chestnut describes the puzzle of why the nucleus of an atom, for example, holds together. Consider, he writes, the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged, eight with no charged. Earlier physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other and unlike charges or magnetic poles attract each other. And the entire history of Electrical phenomenon and electrical equipment had been built up on these principles known as Coulomb's law of electrostatic force and the law of magnetism. What was wrong? What holds the nucleus together? Why doesn't it fly apart? And therefore, why do not all atoms fly apart? Unquote. It is because Christ holds everything together. It is because Christ has a sustaining ministry and he holds all things and the laws to function as they do. Without Christ, you and I would explode, fall apart. But it is because of Christ. And that is why we give glory to God. Because through God and His grace, He continues to hold all things together. Give us life. Sustain us. Grant to us abilities and knowledge that we might exercise them to God's glory. That is why when things go well and we do whatever God calls us to do, all glory goes to God. Because it is by the grace of God that we can do anything whatsoever at all. In him was life, and that life was a light of men. These two themes, life and light, are continual themes within the book of John, repeated, and we'll hear them again. But in the Bible, light reserves to truth and holiness, as it is over and opposed to that which is sinful and dark. When Jesus 
when Jesus said that I am the light of the world, nothing is more radiant. Nothing is more radiant than the glory of God through Christ which shines in the darkness. And the word there, and you see in your marginal notes perhaps, and some of your translations of the darkness did not comprehend it. Sometimes you'll see the word overcome, which may be a better translation. And the darkness did not overcome it. Nothing can overcome the light or the truth of Christ. No sin, no wickedness, no gravitational pull, no demons, no Satan can overthrow the light of Christ because Christ shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. So whether it is Satan's attempt to destroy evil in the Old Testament, whether it is Satan's attempt through Herod to kill all of the children, there has always been a battle to extinguish that light. Whether it is his desire to see Christ crucified on the cross, and even in that God brought glory to himself through his sovereign plan, the force of evil will never prevail. As Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is the person of Christ. The person of Christ who is the hope of our salvation. The person of Christ who is our God. The person of Christ who existed from all of eternity. Who has fellowship with God. Who is God himself. The full embodiment of the word. Personification. Of God, the image of God Himself. And so, when we think about who Jesus is, when we're walking home, we're driving in the car and singing a song, do the songs and the truth mean anything to you? Do they really mean that much? When we sing and say, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. Let's pray. Father, in these first few verses... Oh God, you've lifted our own minds and hearts to heavenly thoughts, for in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh Father, I pray that you would cause us to think deeply, to take time, oh Father, to realize the God that we worship, your Son, Precious. His name means Savior, Master, Lord. May you, O oh Father, cause us to grow deep in reverence for who you are. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.